Welcome to The Intuitive Customer, where we discuss how you can improve your customer experience and your bottom line. And now, here are your hosts, award-winning influencer and pioneering author of seven books, Colin Shaw and Professor Ryan Hamilton from Emory University. I have decided not to require that the countries do this change. It's going to be up to them. Yeah, I remember that. And I remember thinking, oh, (laughs) is that a good idea? But I have to say it was a stroke of genius. I mean, I, I think it plays into the biases of successful people. We want to move. We want to. I shouldn't include myself in that. I'm happy to not move. I do a lot of. <laughs> but, but successful people, like they, they want to get stuff done. So you, you point them at a problem, and they're like a, you know, a dog being constrained by a leash. Sustaining that improvement is where the control comes in. Communicate, communicate, communicate. I mean, we all hear that. And I don't mean email, because we actually proved email was highly ineffective. So, Ryan, you know Beyond Philosophy has been going for 20 years now. Yes. Well, over the years, I have to say, I've led implementations, I've been part of implementations, and I've seen implementations being done from afar. Mm Mm-hmm. But certainly one of the best implementations that I have ever seen over that 20 years was with Merskline. And people have heard me talk about Merskline before. They were, they're the largest container shipping company in the world. And a Forrester report showed that they'd increased their net promoter by 40 points over 30 months that led to a 10% rise in shipping volumes. And I know that Michelle, uh, who is our guest on the show today, is going to be a bit bashful when I, when I say that I think this was down to her because the best implementation I've been involved with was led by Michelle, Michelle Patterson. So uh, we've got Michelle on the show today to reveal what her secret is. So uh, welcome, Michelle. Welcome, Michelle. Thank you. And so, yes, I am. Uh, thankfully, I'm not on camera, so you can't see my red cheeks. Uh, so thank you, Colin. That's very kind. It certainly didn't feel like that at the time. It many never of, does, many does of, it? Yeah, it does it. <laughs> no, as you're pulling your hair out, thinking what you can do next and how to go about it. But genuinely, when I take a step back and I think about all the bits, and we're going to cover a number of them in this show today, uh, I genuinely think, and I think I said it just after we, we finished working together, it was really good, a real sort of a classically good implementation. So I think there's a lot that the listener is going to be able to learn from uh, today. Michelle, maybe let's start off just tell your people a bit about your background and what led you to that point. Sure. So I'm guessing that a lot of your audience are actually customer experience professionals, which I'm not. Even though I've done a couple of them, my background has actually been in continuous improvement. And for those who are familiar in Lean Six Sigma, I fell in love with that idea actually in college and I've done it my entire career. I've done it as a consultant. I've done it in a lot of different companies, automotive industry, a lot of different other industries. I was in tech. I was at Compact Computer, Hewlett Packard, 
And then, as you mentioned, at Marislon, and then I actually worked with the Department of Defense, and then uh, most recently with Hellman, which is a freight forwarding company. So the Ministry of Defense, not the Ministry, actually, the Department of Defense. Are tra- Were you thinking of the Ministry of Magic, Colin? That's a what? different, that's a different yeah. thing. I'll just imagine that they're trying to improve their customers' experience in the, <laughs> ah, in the Department of Defense. <laughs> you'll get a lot of complaints Colin if that's what you're asking <laughs> and I probably should have started with uh, as you hear my accent I'm not British I'm also <laughs> from the US and most specifically sort of southern US more like hillbilly so I was from West Virginia so that so that's been my background why did you get selected to do the, the CX program? Because whoever it was, it was a stroke of genius. At Marisline, at the beginning of the year, they would come up with the strategic initiatives. You know, a lot of companies do that. And then they'll do sort of the, the rollout is going into the regions. I was in the North America region. And one of the projects came and it was called Easy for Customers, Effective for Us. And at the end of their dialogue, their dog and pony show, I happened to mention, I said, do you realize the only time you mentioned the customer was in your title? <laughs> and and they, they, they realized that that was actually true. They went back to Copenhagen and they discussed it and they asked my boss, do you, do you think Michelle would actually be interested in leading an effort around? At that time, it was world-class customer service. So that was what it actually started out being. But but for me, the customer in Lean Six Sigma and continuous improvement, everything really has to start with the customer and what's important to the customer. Otherwise, you don't know what's waste, what's value, what's non-value added in your organization. So so it, it really touches on my background as well. Sure. So today we are going to talk about the five rules for a successful CX customer experience implementation. And rather than me or Ryan pontificate about what those should be, we decided to leave it to Michelle because she's a practitioner. She's gone out there and done it. And therefore, these are Michelle's five rules, which I have to say, I think are great. And again, just cover all the bases. So let me pass over to you, Michelle, and, and maybe you tell us what the first rule is. Okay. Well, let me just start with, just as you you know, as we just said, that really wasn't my background. So when I started this initiative around world-class customer service at the time, I had zero idea what to do. None. I leaned on my Lean Six Sigma background and the project management structure that a lot of Lean Six Sigma practitioners use. And that is a model define, measure, analyze, improve, control, or DMAIC for short. Um, I think many people probably are very familiar with that. Because I was used to that, that's really, you call them the five rules, five phases. Those are the, that's the way I actually structured it. And that first one, the define, answers the question, what are we trying to accomplish, which is so vitally important. You know, I said this started out as world-class customer service, but the more we started exploring what exactly do we need to do, and we went out and talked to the customer service people and the customers and, and the sales people, 
And basically what we found is it wasn't just about our customer service department. It was really in a lot of different ways that we touched the customer, that customer journey. And so it ended up, we were able to change that title because we were able to more clearly define what we were trying to accomplish. We ended up changing it to customer experience innovation. So it was really about improving that customer experience as a part of a business strategy. And just as an aside, it was really hard in, and I guess maybe in a lot of different industries, but in my industry, in that industry, uh, container shipping, warm and fuzzy didn't get a lot of play. Sure. No. And so for me going in saying, hey, we need to focus on the customer's experience, I really had to go in with sound research to show that this was true. This is founded in science. This is about a sound business strategy. So you you really have a leg to stand on when you've got the senior executives talking about profit and market share and money. This makes sense. Yeah, it is warm and fuzzy, but, and you may end up hugging your customer at the end of it, but, but, but it really is the reason to do it is for your business. Yeah, and, and I think that's worth just dwelling on for a moment because there's a couple of things here I think are important. One is that obviously Merskline being a logistics company, you can imagine shifting uh, containers around the globe, is pretty left-brain analytical activity. Maersk are a very, very left-brain analytical organization. Uh, and therefore, when you start talking about customer experience and, and emotions and all that type of stuff, that's not that's not something that was common to them, which I think they did really well at embracing after some education on some of that subject. The second thing for me is just the way that you then went about part of that or part of that education and uh, I remember Hannah was was obviously a key person at the time, wasn't she? Yes, she was, indeed. How did you go about doing that then, Michelle? You raised Hannah. That One of the things that has been important for me, not just in this initiative or any major initiative, and that is that you really need at least one influential senior leader to sponsor your effort because you will need them to, to sell this for you. You know, I could do part of it myself, but having someone actually on the executive management board made a difference for me. So if you can have that, that's great. The next part in Define is, you know, where you're pulling your team together. And I purposely set out devising the most diverse team I could possibly devise. I mentioned, you know, I didn't really know what I was doing. So in my opinion, I needed as many different ways of thinking about this, many different ideas as possible. And so I I literally put down a list of all the different varieties of all the different attributes and selected the team. And it was a it was a global team. We pulled together people from a lot of from several different countries. There were nine of us and we did co-locate in Charlotte, although we had pilots uh, in different countries in the world. And I think that's an important aspect as well, because, again, so many times we hear organizations say, oh, yeah, well, you can't just push American thinking or in this case, Danish thinking throughout the globe or it's different for us here. And therefore, for me, 
again, one of the good things that you did was you did get that diversity of, of views. So people from Asia, people from Europe, people from the Americas, all over the place, didn't you? Yes. And it is kind of funny that, you know, I included people from all levels as well in the organization. And I remember, if you you might recall this, we had a new person who ended up leading customer service. And he looked at my team and he said, this is absolutely not the right team. You need senior managers on your team. You need senior leaders. And I had people from all different levels. Uh, thankfully, he ended up, if you ask, if you were to ask him today, he would say, absolutely, it was the perfect team. And they were. I will say that while we didn't do this at Marisline, I did do this later at another company at Hellman, and that was aligning this effort with the employee engagement. While we didn't do it, I think that that's really, really powerful. So I would suggest that. Yeah. So that's kind of the defined phase. You know, what is it you're trying to accomplish? Pull your team together and make sure that you have good stakeholder engagement. It's shocking to me how often that step gets skipped, you know, not just in, in CX initiatives, but kind of in a lot of major business initiatives. We've got some vague goal. We want to increase sales or improve customer experience or, you know, provide great customer satisfaction. And then we just move immediately to action of some kind without giving any thought to the the strategy behind it or what might be causing the deficits that we're seeing or what might cause the improvements we want to see. And I think the, the example you gave is a great one where you can step back and realize that the problem you were about to try to solve was not the actual problem that would help you achieve the goal that you want to reach. It's funny you mentioned that, Ryan. I actually was doing continuous improvement before Lean Six Sigma was a thing. And a lot of people probably do not know this. When that DMAIC structure actually was MAIC, it was measure, analyze, and improve (laughs) control at the beginning. And they ended up adding the define for exactly that reason. People will jump to the solution and implement a solution without really understanding why. Uh, so, so it is very important. I mean, I, I think it plays into the biases of successful people. We want to move. We want to. I shouldn't include myself in that. I'm happy to not move. I do a lot of. <laughs> but, but successful people, like they, they want to get stuff done. So you, you point them at a problem, and they're like a, you know, a dog being constrained by a leash. You just want to like release the leash and let them let them go. But taking that breath and trying to figure out, are we in fact going to solve the right problem? It's it's super important. Yeah, it is. So that sort of leads me to that next phase, and that's measure. And in the measurement phase, you're answering the question, how will we know a change is an improvement? Understanding what are the measures of value that we want to look at, things like market share, net promoter score, customer retention. There are a lot of different things, but that you need to get a baseline early on so that later as you test things, you'll know whether a change is an improvement. So you can use that. And in this phase, you also need to get the voice of the customer and the voice of the process. And for that customer voice, understanding what's important to them, this is where I really realized that I was out of my depth. Started out pretty good. I, you know, I think we're going in the right direction but how do I truly understand what the customer experience needs to be and what are their customer needs? This is how I ended up uh, finding Beyond Philosophy. 
I had some experience in customer experience back at Hewlett Packard. We were in the total customer experience and quality organization. And so I had seen some customer experience professionals, some gurus and different ways of thinking around customer experience. I honestly wasn't impressed with what I'd seen. And until I was connected with Colin and Colin shared with me their model, that's where I became very interested and very specifically in the emotional signature. My background is I'm a, I have a bachelor's and master's in statistics. So, right. so the Perfect statistics, the, yeah, the model behind this really spoke to me. It said it's so clever in how it's designed to uncover both the conscious and the subconscious. And Colin, you tell that story about Disney. Yeah. And I can't tell you how many people have had to hear that story. But, um, <laughs> It just, I, it's, it just makes sense. I think the audience know of it, but let me tell you if you don't. Uh, so th- this is the bit where we talk, uh, you, you've heard me talk about what drives value. So the, the example that Michelle's just referring to is that Disney know that when they ask their customers what they want to eat at a theme park, Disney know that their customers will tell them that they'd like to have an option of a salad. Disney also know that people don't eat salads at theme parks. They eat hot dogs and hamburgers. So what your customers tell you and what actually drives value can be different. And the important aspect, and this is the emotional signature, is looking into that. But as Michelle's indicating, and the reason we created it, to be totally honest with you, is to put numbers behind it. Because if you're in a left brain business organization, then you need to have the statistical rigor to be able to prove, and Michelle used another word, which I think is important, the science behind it, not just go, well, we think it's a good idea, so you should do it, basically. It was very, very clever, cleverly designed. And, uh, you know, as I said, as a statistician, it spoke to me, things like structural equation modeling. I'm like, oh, yeah, you taught statistics, and I've taught statistics, literally. People fall in their chairs because they're either asleep or scared to death. And so the other part of the emotional signature that I didn't figure, I didn't know the value right off was the shell chart that comes out of it that makes all of this statistics come out to be very, very easy to understand. And so the communication around that is very, very important. So I appreciated the emotional signature and Another thing was the customer mirror that you did. I'll never forget that one either, Colin. You actually called one of our customer service centers and it was, I I played that recording. I can still kind of hear it in my head where (laughs) it was just so horrible. And that, that was, I think you called the London office first and then you called the U.S. and the U.S. put you into this, this do loop. Uh, You could never actually get to a person and it actually even took you to a website that didn't go anywhere. So the voice of the customer is important in this phase. And the next is the voice of the process. So where are you internally today? Understanding that Beyond Philosophy had the tool, the naive to natural, we did that. And where can we improve internally? You know, it's ongoing. You need to continue that throughout the entire process and the MAIC as a model, the define, measure, analyze, improve, control, while it sounds linear, actually isn't linear. You do have to go back and forth in in this process. 
And Ryan, you mentioned something about many people, and I think we're all, we want to jump to a solution. One of the things in this phase is if there are some things that everyone can agree is good to do, then you could jump to the solution. These are sort of the gimmies, if you will. If there are some things there that everyone agrees is important for the customer and it's really easy to implement, you know, go ahead and do those then. You don't have to agonize and wait until later. And those are the quick wins, aren't they? Which quick keep, wins. The, keep the project going and, and yeah. get people to start to realize that this isn't a five-year strategy. It's, you know, you can actually do something and affect things straight away. Absolutely. I like that the measurement consideration comes at the beginning before we do things. A lot of people assume that whatever action they'll take, they'll be able to know afterwards whether it was successful or not. That is typically not true. You first have to set up your measurement regime. You need to know how you're going to know um, whether things are going to change and, and and measure those things beforehand and see how they, they evolve. So I like that measurement is not something that happens afterwards. Measurement is something that needs to be planned for. Absolutely. And, and getting that baseline as soon as possible allows you to tell whether a change is indeed an improvement. We wanted to thank everybody for listening. You are great and the reason we do this. We're really pleased that we now have over 200 episodes. We've seen the podcast grow and grow. And now, according to Buzzsprout, it is in the top 5% of all podcasts globally. Thank you. That is truly amazing and not possible without you. But we have one request of you. Can you please tell a friend, a neighbor, or even someone you hate? It'd be really good to get more listeners and it encourages Ryan and I to continue to produce the show. So please just tell a friend. So for Analyze, where you're answering the question, what changes can you make that will result in improvement? And in that case, what you are doing is you're understanding what is that customer journey? What are some areas where you can improve that journey and actually testing those. You can test those in different pilots, if, if you will, yep. but getting as much input as you can, defining that experience. We defined for Maersline that we had three emotions that we wanted the customer to experience, and that way we could design to that. We also involved as many people as possible in that. We went to different locations. We did what we call brown paper fairs, brown paper on the wall, asking people, what do we do well? What do we not do well? And what changes might we make? And then we always made it fun. That was the other is that, I mean, we had this one thing, it was called Maersk Google, so that people could actually gather better information together. And we called it Moogle. And so some of the team went out in cow suits literally to do this. So, you know, just people remember that. The next phase, improve, is where you're doing the pilots. They're doing the testing because you might think that it's an improvement, but truly it's the customer that's going to tell you whether it's an improvement. So in the DMAIC, you know, or the Lean Six Sigma terminology, doing plan, do, study, act cycles. So PDSAs, PDCAs for some people, 
but looking for some of those successes and you'll use those successes to sell this on a bigger uh, on a bigger scale so the pilots become very very important and and just a, a little note for my project because it wasn't the one of the original big strategic initiatives we only had a small budget amazingly that ended up being a wonderful thing for us because we knew we couldn't do big things. We had to do just little things. Little things ended up making huge differences. It was things like people taking ownership, not using Maersklingo, different things in how people reacted to the customer or thought about the customer. Those made the difference. And so we didn't have to purchase a big system and put something in place or something that was going to take years to to implement. These were changes that could happen very, very quickly. And amazingly, and this is one of the things going back to employee engagement, the employees loved it because it was all about doing things that made the customer feel better, which ended up making them feel better as well. Let me, let me add a little bit of color there because there's a couple of things in your analyze and improve that I think are worthy of note. One is that there was 10 of you centrally, which is this diverse team. But what we got agreed was that each of the countries would have an ambassador, as you've said, but we then trained all of the ambassadors on what customer experience meant. And those ambassadors, some of them were full-time, some of them were were part-time. And they helped you implement the central programs, but also then did, I, I always remember a slide, Michelle, that you guys used, which showed, you know, like 50 different projects that were underway, which were all things that ambassadors were doing locally, to your point of, you know, making small changes. And I think part of the really good thing I thought of with the overall program was the engagement of people around the globe by your small team of 10 people and getting things done through other people within those organizations. So glad you brought that up. The ambassadors for customer experience, we call them the ACEs, unbelievably, unbelievably creative These were people who already sort of bought into this and then putting them in a network together, they did amazing, amazing things. And then they would share them and then they'd get more enthusiastic. And in a lot of cases, they were really simple things that other country clusters could share and do. So the final phase is control. And this is where you're sustaining the gain and improve. You're testing it out in pilots. You're starting to grow this in a larger way, you're implementing it on a bigger scale, but sustaining that improvement is where the control comes in. Communicate, communicate, communicate. I mean, we all hear that. And I don't mean email because we actually proved email was highly ineffective. It was about getting with people, people getting with others, you know, getting our ambassadors out there locally with the teams that that were doing the work and working with the customers. It was about communicating regularly to our senior leaders and then growing them in a network. Then continuously improving, you know, where you are at the end of this, you know, this was, we certainly were learning every single day something new. So you're just continuously improving never stopping and never giving up. And it's funny you mentioned about the 52 clusters, Colin. I'm sure you will remember 
that because of all those strategic initiatives, the regions were worn out. Overloaded. This yeah. was this was a tough time in the industry and trying to do all these strategic initiatives. Our senior management were they were getting a lot of flack from the regional and country managers saying, we can't do all this change. And so Hannah, you mentioned, our, our, I think she was chief commercial officer at the time. Yeah. We were given our update and she said, Michelle, I have decided not to require that the countries do this change. It's going to be up to them. Yeah, I remember that. And I remember thinking, oh, is that a good idea but i have to say it was a stroke of genius it was it it really was but i tell you it was nerve-wracking i had i had to go back to my team and tell them that yeah we were we were devastated and i remember the day we had our whiteboard up with all of the different country clustering up and it was the day where they had to decide go or no go and as the numbers came in, as the decisions came in, I could not believe it. 49 of 52 clusters decided to go. And a cluster is a group of countries. Yeah, effectively. sorry, thank you. Yeah. A group of countries. And, and for each of them, for them to decide to go, they had to at least give us one person who was more than 50% this role. That was our ambassadors. And I required that they be more than 50% because it had to be their priority. And in a time when all resources were important, that had to be a big decision for those country leadership. So I was excited that, that they did. And they and they did amazing. That company so completely transformed. Yeah. And I think that is, I just don't think that should be underestimated because at the time, as we both I remember talking to you about it, thinking, oh, yeah, that's, I'm not sure about that. Uh, but as I say, it was a stroke of genius because what it did was rather than it being imposed, you've got to do this from the center, it suddenly turned out to be, uh, right, yeah, this is a good idea and will help us. Now, I don't think we were both naive enough, Michelle, to go, everybody really wants to do it because a certain percentage of people would have probably seen the political way the wind was blowing uh, and decided to, to to jump on board it really created a, a a groundswell of people wanting to do it rather than uh, being forced to do it which i thought was great it was and you just have to stay positive celebrate make heroes and i can't remember if it was a customer but it was definitely someone in, and internally we went from 1800 who cares to I remember in North America when we were actually having customers, meeting with customers, and they said, we don't know what you guys are doing, but you are so different. And sure. we, they even wanted to benchmark us. It was great. Yeah. No, it was a really good implementation. And as I say, probably the, one of the best ones I've been involved with. Two things as well that you haven't mentioned, I think are worthy of mention. One is you were very strict on who was an ambassador. I remember working with you guys on on what the role would be and therefore the job description. And the second thing was putting in place the structure, what we call a customer experience council. So in other words, a reporting mechanism from literally the ambassadors would have monthly meetings and then the central team would have, I think, uh, monthly meetings. And then that would eventually roll up to the board who then had quarterly meetings solely to do with customer experience. And again, I think 
it was all those, to be honest with you, to a certain extent, it's all those boring things that people just, you know, assume are going to be there and then they don't eventually get them. But uh, I, I think all of those things really added to it as well. Absolutely. Thank you for pointing pointing those out. The ambassadors, the ACEs, the ambassadors of customer experience, we did. We were very cautious in who we selected. We wanted to make sure that they were they were really good. We trained them very well. We had a um, our HR organization, our global HR organization helped us to develop that training. We would start with the whole experience. We would create the experience for the ambassadors, all the five senses, and to let them know how important that experience was. And then putting them in a format of success around the, the councils as well. So Ryan, the the danger is, is Michelle and I are going to sit here and reminisce for the next four hours. Any observations from you? Any thoughts from you on this? Yeah, I I mean, I think that this is a a great list and and Michelle, I'll encourage you to uh, read it out again in summary before we we close off here. But I mean, it works as a general framework. I like how you applied it specifically to customer experience. You know, the reputation of um, process improvement and, and Lean Six Sigma it is that it's dehumanizing. That's not. It's not necessarily a justified reputation. This idea that we're turning people into processes. And what I loved about your your approach here and what you talked through is it was so human at every stage here. You know, you and Colin talked about the importance of getting people enthusiastic and therefore allowing them to opt out as a way of getting them on board and signing in. You talked about how the the limited budget may have actually been. A blessing. Why? Because you started with small things that could get people excited and engaged that they could come up with themselves and that they could do and see, like notice immediate improvements from their interactions with their customers. All of those things speak to how important it is to to get people motivated and a part of the process. So often you hear about these failed implementations where somebody in the C-suite kicks down a few million dollars for a new software system that imposes just a burden on all the employees built beneath and they they very grudgingly use it if they use it at all and it never ends up getting integrated properly and years later it was just a big waste of time and money and nothing is improved if instead we 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 focus on the individuals who are going to to make this work and in some way you were you were focused throughout on the customer experience of the employees in implementing this new process and so i, I suggest that that's a large part of why this worked so well. I agree with that. I actually think, I was thinking about this earlier, Michelle, and, and it clearly is the case because it's Lean Six Sigma, but you can apply this to virtually every bloody project you run, basically. But I do think that it's, uh, the important thing is that, as, as Ryan said, that you managed to do was to to keep that human element in there and not dehumanize it. I think it was was really good. So, Michelle, any last practical tips that you would give somebody embarking on a project similar to yours? So I think as Ryan said, and and Colin, you said as well, this framework actually works with, I've done it in a lot of different, lot of different things. So I think that is true. And using it to guide you through it, that define, you know, what is it you're trying to accomplish? Clearly understanding that measure how will you know a change is an improvement and getting that baseline early on so you can see if a change results in an improvement? Analyze 
What are some of the changes that we can do that can result in an improvement? Testing those out is very, very important. Seeing if they truly are important. Do they result in the improvement that you expected? Implement those on a greater scale. Make sure that you're communicating. And then in that control phase, staying in touch, making sure that people are in touch with each other, celebrating those successes, and just always, always continuously improving. And Ryan... If you're thinking that Lean Six Sigma is not about people, then you should definitely come to my training because it's all about people. (laughs) Awesome. There you go. So the five rules are define, measure, analyze, improve, and control. So Michelle, it's been great having you on the show today. If people want to get hold of you, then then how do they do that? Uh, so please go to my uh, LinkedIn profile. Feel free to, to message me. I'm very happy. You can look in my contact information there as well. And Michelle's M-I-C-H-E-L Patterson. So I love, as you can tell, I love talking about this stuff. Yeah. So uh, I'm no, always absolutely. happy to help. Great. And we'll obviously put a link in the show notes to Michelle's LinkedIn profile. So thanks very much, uh, Michelle. And we look forward to seeing everybody next week on the show. Cheers. It's an honor. Thank you. Bye-bye. This has been The Intuitive Customer with Colin Shaw and Professor Ryan Hamilton. But it doesn't end here. Just go to beyondphilosophy.com slash podcast to find all of our shows, access free tools and resources, and subscribe, won't you? That way you'll never miss a show. That's beyondphilosophy.com slash podcasts. We look forward to talking with you next time on The Intuitive Customer. Intuitive Customer.